Okay, hello everyone. Uh, we're coming together today to discuss A Shallow Wolf. And today I'm joined by Lucas, who just got hello. some coffee. Hello, I am Lucas. I also Darvish. got some coffee. Hi, so you did. And Tiana, one of our student assistants. Hello, everyone. So, uh, our topic today is the interrogation of a shallow wolf. Um, why don't we start with its genre, since that seems to be a thing that you probably noticed quite early on in your reading of this. It's probably could be discovered, uh, sorry, it probably could be described as a young adult dystopia. So I was just hoping to hear from you what you think of that, how it handles the generic conventions, how it follows them or not follows them. So, so I, I guess if, if I can start, I would talk about first, there is obviously this sort of tradition of YA dystopia in the last five to 15 years, mm -hmm. uh, where we have a young uh, female protagonist uh, who is part of a society, but from the lower echelon of that society is rising up against the greater structure. Uh, for examples, you can look to The Hunger Games or Divergent or mm -hmm. probably one million other books. Uh, I think when it comes to that part of the generic convention, it's really clear uh, that this is the kind of intergeneric relationship that we're trying to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, David, what do you think? Yeah, um, I concur with Lucas. Um, the Interrogation of a Shallow Wolf is the second text by Amberlynn Palmolinas that I had a look at. So mm. thank you very much, um, Tina and Lucas, for, for introducing me to, to more of her work, really, um, because that is also a learning curve for me, kind of. Um, and I found it very interesting to think of the interrogation um, of a shallow wolf as not exactly a, um, how do I put this? Well, it certainly does stand in a tradition, just as Lucas said, mm -hmm. but I found it very interesting to look at it from the perspective of indigenous young adult dystopians. Mm. I couldn't help but compare it to a, a beautiful novel, um, Jerry Dimelines, um, The Marrow Thieves. Uh, mm. She's a Canadian Métis writer. Yes. Um, and she has a um, similar scenario. It is about um, a dystopian future where native people are being hunted down for the capability um, dreaming. They're the only people left on planet Earth oh, who right. can still dream, right? Um, and this ability is being sought after um, as a remedy to, to cure um, all evils that have forced out that dystopian scenario. Um, and of course, there are a couple of convergences and, and a couple of differences as well. Um, I just want to say that I found the interrogation of the Shallow Wolf highly fascinating um, as a text in in emerging well it, it has existed before but it's it's coming up ever um, more strongly um, mm -hmm. indigenous indigenous ya um, dystopias also along the lines of climate fiction um, mm -hmm. so there are a couple of things that directions that this could be pushed into yeah absolutely uh lucas is that a direct response yeah shall direct we... response if that's then, okay of course sure. um so obviously we have ash right and her power is to make her dreams a reality mm -hmm. uh which is uh quite an interesting power if you think about it, especially if we think of that in relation to the ideas of dystopia and utopia, right? Both of these are, mm -hmm. are dreams of the future that may be realities. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that honestly, this, uh, this kind of connection between these two pieces regarding dreaming, especially in the Australian context, is just so interesting uh, on a generic level, but also on a level about like what, what are dreams even? Mm -hmm. so, 
before we get into that tangent. So uh, let, let's hear what Tiana has to say about the genre then. Um, I would go back to what David said before that it's, um, I think the thing that stands out most in this novel is that it's from the standpoint of an indigenous um, person, mm -hmm. right? And I think what this does or what it enables is that we totally destigmatize and and um, validate and sort of I want to say de-infantilize the indigenous worldview. Like um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Obvious that the Western way of life, I'd say, or the outlook on life, was what brought the downfall, and mm. uh, that the answer to the new, like to this new utopian possible possibility is um, from an indigenous standpoint. I think that is what makes um, this so special and that is what subverts these uh, usual Western dystopian novels, I'd say. Absolutely. I think that's a very good point. Uh, there's, there's a lot for me to respond to right now. Um, I agree with what Lucas said uh, right at the beginning about the let's say the basic generic conventions that it does follow. And then it goes on to, to subvert them and to do something different as Jill and also David, uh, Tiana, sorry, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, so what Tiana just said is that because the Western mindset caused the downfall of sort of apocalypse, we are now in this post-apocalyptic society and I think that society alone does something very different, very interesting with the generic concepts of utopia and dystopia. Because it's a dystopian text, right? It's a young adult dystopia, but lots of the elements of that society that we're already looking at are dystopian, uh, utopian. We're looking at something that, that has moved on from uh, greed-based capitalism and we've got this idea of the balance that needs to be kept. And that is something that is in mainstream society in a Charlotte future. And so that, that I would think is a utopian outlook. And then we have all these dystopian elements coming in. Mm. It's because we see, right, that the balance isn't about harmony and attunement, really. It's mm. about something a little bit different than all of that. Um, and I think, I think that is definitely something worth highlighting. One other little generic convention I want to add, because I don't want people to just think that we are just like, well, there's a, there's a female character in it and she's strong, so it's dystopian, um, okay. is if we look at the, uh, young, the young adult dystopias, they often have a relationship with uh, someone who is on the inside a little bit, right? Uh, in this case, uh, we have a relationship with someone who's a, a guard, right? Um, but in other examples, if we look at the Hunger Games, we have PETA, who's part of a, a higher class family in the district. Or if we look mm. at Divergent, we have uh, someone who is one of the instructors in one of the factions who holds a very high position in five. Um, mm. These are, this is part of it too, because it shows us that a possibility for change can emerge from the connections we have with other people. Yeah. So while normally I would mm. sideline this romance B-plot and say, screw that, I really think it's doing something here. It's arguing something. Mm. Yeah. And I think what you just said, the connections between people, I think that's really one of the main points of the entire trilogy. It's about establishing these connections. And it's not just about, as you said, the Romans B plot. It is there, but I thought that um, Ashala Wolf does a much better job of, of weighing the priorities right. Mm -hmm. Like Ashala does have a relationship. I mean, she's a 16 year old girl. 
she'll be interested in having a relationship. Why not? Mm. And she does have that with Connor, but there's no, there's no exaggerated focus on that. Mm. They're all clear that, you know, the main point is, you know, trying and stop the oppression of young children with abilities. Uh, David, you were going to say something? Yeah, um, just, just to follow up on that, I think it is interesting mm. to observe how in that respect um, relationships and which is why, um, you know, we can't really come at this from the perspective of romance, be, uh, romance, you know, a subplot, romantic B subplot, um, because relationship here is being translated into alliance, I guess, and it interrogates the question of relationship and relatability, um, mutual relationship, reciprocity, um, mutual mm -hmm. respectful reciprocal relationship. So it's it's really about alliances between people, and I think that mm -hmm. is one of the very strong points of this text. Um, mm -hmm. I think. Lucas. One could say it interrogates us into the position of considering the wolf pack as mm -hmm. a sort of tribal organizational structure, one where we connect on a more individual le level. Not that yeah. sort of zoo zoological phenomenon, the alpha beta, but the real phenomenon where there is a more uh, direct connection and relationship between the overall group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because of course the, the alpha wolf, beta wolf is something that's only observed in uh, imprisoned wolves. Mm -hmm. Wolves exactly. in captivity, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the first novel is the interrogation of a shallow wolf and she calls herself wolf because she connects most with wolves as her, you know, uh, most connected animal companion even. She, there's a point in the second novel where she goes to live with the wolves. Um, and of course, the entire society that she builds up with these children who have abilities just like her, and because of that, they're supposed to go into detention centers for the safety of the wider community. Um, they flee and they join her tribe. So we have this, this entire discourse on these kind of communities there, I think. Yeah. Right. Um, we've already broached the children with abilities being oppressed and in different kinds of ways. David, you went to it with this intertextual comparison between um, the Marrow Thieves and we've, we've just discussed it as well. So I thought maybe we can go a bit deeper into discussion of the abilities, what they mean and why are these children being put in detention centers? What's the relevance of that? Um, One thing that came up in my, in my reading initially when I took some notes, uh, just so you guys know, we recorded a podcast for this once before. Um, so uh, it might be a little foggy on the exact things about this, but uh, the names of the characters, right? And names are here as defined as part of the person's spiritual identity, part of their real identity, part of their, their essence, whatever that might be. Um, their names are also connected intimately to their abilities. Uh, Ash's ability is the residue of life, right? Dreams are something that happen when you're asleep. They are the after effect, but they can, just like Ash's, sustain or nourish uh, other ideas or possibilities. Uh, when we look at Ember, Glowing when we look Ember. at, <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, you know, there's certain kind of connections that are pretty obvious, I think, uh, when it comes to how these abilities connect to personalities connect mm. to uh, feelings and being. Uh, I totally left my book in the other room when I switched for this podcast. Uh, but there are many sections when we talk about jazz um, where they describe his movement and it so much relates to his ability because you know that his ability is directly connected to his personality. Mm -hmm. 
So I think when people are persecuted for their abilities, it's also persecution for who they are. Absolutely. I agree with that. I mean, the children are also born with these abilities. So it's not something they can choose or they have trained to be good at. It's something that they're born with and they're being persecuted because their abilities are constructed as something dangerous. Um, now you talked about names. I think uh, that was a very good reading, especially of Ashala's name. Uh, some names I think are probably a bit more subtle. There's Georgie Spider. I think maybe we could see the, the spider webs as an image of the picture of the future that she's weaving and she's looking at all these different threads. So that makes sense in a way, but I think uh, a little, you have to dig a little deeper to get at that. Uh, there's one name though of a person without any abilities that I think is not that sub subtle and that's uh, the character of Neville Rose, who uh, is one of the, the leaders, the, the organizers of these detention center, um, yeah, detention center system. What, so do what you is think the relevance of Neville, though? I think David may want to answer that. <laughs> it's just, um, well, he's, he was an evil person back in the day. So A.O. Neville, or Ober Octavius Neville, was um, in the 1800s, 1900s. Um, he died in 1945, actually. He was uh, in WA, and uh, he died in Perth. Um, he was what they called back in the day the chief protector of Aborigines. So he was in charge of Aboriginal affairs, which basically meant that he was in charge of all the concentration camps um, and all the violence being perpetrated um, against um, Aboriginal Australians. Uh, he was he was the head of that department who did all these evil things. He was in charge uh, of all the of all the policies that um, yeah took Aboriginal people mm. from their land, that placed them on missions, that uh, basically enslaved them. So um, his name. Um, NWA is the name of violence, racist violence, colonial violence against Aboriginal people. Interesting uh, fact, interesting to note, in Perth, um, there's a building um, which used to be his office. Um, today, this one is occupied by an NGO, an Aboriginal non-governmental organization called Yokai, which um, is an Aboriginal um, rights and sovereignty um, social work NGO uh, and they work in all fields related to you know Aboriginal autonomy, health, um, mm -hmm. basically the, the, the advocacy for indigenous rights in, in, in WA so I think I think it's pretty cool they they made this a very big gesture you know occupying mm. his office making it making it the head office for yokai so check them out um, it's Y-O-K-A-I um, yeah and remember NWA does not refer to the hip-hop group although it is a wonderful group <laughs> oh. Thank you, Lucas. Yeah. Um, I'm here so for yeah, the insight. <laughs> so we've got this connection between the, the character Neville Rose, who's running Detention Center One, and the history of Aboriginal Australians. And I think you all agree with me that that's uh, no coincidence, right? Um, Tiana also already said, oh, you want to say something? Go ahead. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think having him as a stand-in for the the past history of Indigenous people and the way he's dealt with throughout um, the trilogy is a beautiful way to give back agency from like and it's I don't know it it goes from the past into the future and there's this time warping thing that is going mm. on. Original um, 
way of telling stories and histories. And I think that is a very beautiful tie-in to just deal with your past and especially with the colonial colonial past and um, also mm. in, so to speak, your um, culture and those references into the future. I think that is beautifully dealt with. Um, and also, yeah, I think, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that those were really good points. Uh, it also speaks a little bit to the uh, circularity of history in a way, right? Because this this is sort of a repetition of what happened before. Uh, the novel is set in the future, but yet again we've got we've got a Neville character, and we've got detention centres. And I think this is referring to two distinct moments in Australian history, one being what we just talked about, um, the mistreatment of Aboriginal Australians, the stolen generation, because here as well we have children being taken away from their parents to be raised in a government institution, in the detention centre in this case. Um, Neville himself is, is described in a very interesting way, and if you want to look at page 24, uh, Ashala describes him and says, I just hadn't expected him to seem so sweet, grandfatherly, mm. harmless. He wasn't harmless, not at all. And since Lucas already gave away that we had this podcast before, <laughs> I think we talked about why this is so important that he's described as this grandfatherly figure. Mm. Do you want to? Yeah. Right, we have two, two grandfatherly figures in the story, two ancestral voices of the past. And Neville Rose, uh, something we talked about in our last attempt, um, lest we forget, uh, was about the meaning of the rose in conjunction with this, right? Because the rose uh, certainly symbolizes bum, 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 English history a bit, um, and also uh, has this relationship today with social democratic forces, which we might consider as being the kind of incrementalists who allow for a continual change in society that seeks harmony, uh, but fosters imprisonment of peoples and, and fosters a lot of ideas that seem tolerant, but maybe aren't so much. Um, when it comes to the grandfatherly distinctions, what makes them important is not just that there are voices of the past, right? It is important that there are voices of the past, but uh, that we have something that appears innocent on the surface, something that is part of our lineage even, part of our, our ingrained history that we can turn to, we're expected to turn to, we're conditioned to turn to, uh, but that voice may be the very imprisonment uh, of us as people, mm -hmm. right? So it's in a way this appeal to patriarchal authority, right? Yeah. And as a counterpoint, uh, yeah, Tiana. Sorry, no, you can go first. You know? No, I think, go ahead. Okay. So now that I'm, uh, that, that I was thinking about it, maybe um, having him also as a very dualistic character, so to speak, um, also, mm -hmm. Besides, like the the um, focus on the individual throughout the whole series, like you can reach the community through the individual, and I think um, this way it just is like the polar opposite of that. He's very um, sweet on the surface, but turns out to mm -hmm. be very evil. And um, I think, in a way, it just it just makes it more realistic, if that makes sense so um you could argue that this person is a monster so neville is a complete monster but in fact he's he's a human being with active choices who chooses to do what he does right mm. and i 
think also it puts like stress on the fact that the individual has a voice and agency and can use it and it just shows oh the tribe uses it this way and neville and his mm. followers i mean it, it could even be seen as a sort of allusion to what he could have been if he made other choices as you said he could have been a kindly grandfather figure there's nothing inherent that would prevent him from that, but he just isn't. And so it's, it's just a facade. Uh, David. That's an interesting point, I guess, because there are a couple of um, post-colonial scholars and critics at the moment, both in the US and Australia, exploring um, increasingly the question, um, what could have happened? You know, what could, what could the scenario have been if only relationships had been different? Um, if only reciprocity would have been at the center of everything. So what world could have emerged? And I think um, mm. the character of Neville kind of doesn't exactly stand in for that, but this ambivalence that this character brings, you know, with him to the text um, might mm. make, one, make, make one think of this. Mm. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, of course, his, his very paternalism um, does stand in, I think, for the false promises of invasion and colonialism, right? Because historically, was this narrative of look we're going to promise you advancement we're going to promise you development we're going to um you know advance you and and lead you into a brighter future um and all that bullshit basically and next thing you know you're you're being taken away your children are being taken away and um, you're being educated right mm. um to become to become an industrious um sort of being but you're a slave basically um on your own country and your culture is being eradicated and taken away so yeah um, and that is what that figure kind of um, mm -hmm. um, encapsulates so powerfully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Lucas. And one thing I think is is pivotal, and this is uh, both in both in right Catching Tower Crow and Interrogation of a Shallow Wolf, uh, the idea that we have this old patriarchal voice, uh, a voice of reason, perhaps of 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 Western reason at least, um, and that voice is existing now in a society that's post-racial right mm -hmm. supposedly we've moved beyond uh these kinds of distinctions uh, but guess what that conservative type of voice uh one that appeals to western enlightenment traditions which are necessarily about racial equality right natural law is all about that uh supposedly <laughs> and once you've followed these these ideas to the end there will be a new difference right the, this kind of, of mm -hmm. discourse will find a new uh, victim uh, mm -hmm. to prey upon. And I think that's one of the warnings of this, uh, this voice in particular, yeah. of Neville. Absolutely. Uh, there's several incidents in the novels where it's highlighted that racial difference doesn't really make a difference anymore. The only reason that we know that Ashala is of an, an indigenous background is that because it's so special and because it gives you that relationship to grandfather serpents but it's not something that you know puts her apart from everybody else they're all different races it doesn't really matter so the new difference that people are being oppressed for are these abilities that they develop uh, be it the dreaming of ashala which also incidentally connects her to her aboriginal heritage or the fire starting or the looking into the future so it's these differences that are being preyed upon, really. Yeah. Uh, I think last time somebody compared that to the X-Men. I think it was you, Lucas, right? Mm -hmm. um, Probably. <laughs> probably. 
Uh, oh yeah, uh, Grandfather Serpent is, I think, also an interesting figure because he's the grandfather they sort of pitted against Neville Rose, and that possibly may stand in for uh, the Western mindset versus the non-Western, in this case, Aboriginal Australian mindsets. But on the other hand, I also want to, you know, stress that this post-racial society has taken on some concepts from non-Western points of view. Uh, it's very, very important for the society to maintain a balance with nature. It's just the problem is it's A, it's being uh, circumvented, these rules, and B, the kids, the children with abilities are not considered a part of that balance. Mm -hmm. But the idea of the balance is, is quite an interesting one, right, Lucas? I think we should also be a little bit suspicious about whether or not they really live in a post-racial society, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the people who rise to the top appear to be the same kinds of people with the same kinds of ideas and possibly the same kinds of race. Mm -hmm. We also have to note that usually if something doesn't matter, you don't mention it very much. So it's a little bit questionable to say, oh yeah, well, you know, race doesn't really matter anymore, but you it know, used but to. But the thing is, this is written for us. It is. We but... are not in a post-racial society, so mentioning it mm -hmm. might be for our benefit. That's right? true, but we are able to free ourselves from that and look at the text. The low, right? And so if we sure. do that, we do have to say, maybe our narrative voice is being a little bit, uh, I mean, maybe it is just talking to us because we don't live in a post-racial society. Mm -hmm. uh, but that would imply the narrator is aware of the audience, and that's a little bit interesting. I mm -hmm. mean... Which very True. well could be. I haven't read the whole trilogy, so I don't know what really happens. But I think we can do with a bit of a spoiler alert. I think that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You want us to tell you? <laughs> well, it isn't. I don't think there's any hint that there really is racial inequality in that society. Okay. And Ashala doesn't have. Well, she does have sort of an insight into what happened in the past because of her ability to. Uh, also connect to non-human sentient beings, such as the first wood. Uh, she gets into that communication with the first wood and learns, for example, about the environmental destruction that happened in the past. I don't think, Tiana, you, you've read the entire trilogy as well, haven't you? Uh, there's no hint that the narrator, that Ashala is actually aware of, of, of talking to a non-post-racial society, right? I don't think so. I think, I don't know if I can spoiler it, but I think um, towards the end of the trilogy, it's more about um, what does de what defines humanity. And because, mm -hmm. I'm spoiler, Ember Crow turns out not to be human. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more about what does it mean to be human or humanitarian in general, rather than that it has any racial components. I think that's a very good point because whether or not we call this post-racial or we can or we cannot for whatever reason, um, tech still works on the premise of the idea that there is some kind of hegemony, that there is a kind of consensus and that this consensus is related to power, that power structures are going to be asymmetrical, that power relations are going to be biased, that mm -hmm. there is going to be a mainstream opinion that is going to be in power and that gets to dictate what the standard is, right? Such as the idea that special gifts and abilities are not wanted. So whether it is post-racial is an interesting thing to talk about, but I think the more important 
hope not more, but um, mm -hmm. at, at least to me, I think a challenging point to think about is question, can there ever be a post-hegemonic society? Can there ever be a post-power-related yeah. whatever? Can there ever be a post-power imbalance kind of existence um, when it comes to human communities? I think maybe that is a question that, that, that comes straight out of the pages of that novel. I think so. And I think maybe the treatment of race, as we know today, may be worthy of discussion, perhaps in the forums, perhaps even as a term paper in, you know, how it's, it's depicted yeah. and so on. But I do agree that the main point probably lies with other power hierarchies. And it's interesting that both of you talked about, uh, you, you, David, you talked about human societies not being able to exist without power hierarchies, perhaps. And Tiana, you mentioned the non-humanity of Amber Crow. And I think that leads on nicely to another important aspect of A Shallow Wolf, which is that it discusses not only human agency, but non-human agency and non-human communities as well. So what do you guys think of it? I think hmm, I have two. I've kind of mixed feelings about this, so I might I might sound kind of contradictory. Go ahead. <laughs> Just warning, listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the non-human agents show us ways that our society could move towards a different non-hegemonic direction. Mm -hmm. But I think this comes with a kind of preconceived notion about how humans are inevitably unable to pursue that kind of reality. We have these two lineages that show us that there might be alternate modes of being, but for mm -hmm. some reason, we always are seeing these structures being rebuilt uh, in, in horrible ways. Uh, once again, though, there's a broader context here to consider greater trilogy. Uh, but within the first book alone, I think that is what we are seeing for now. We're seeing a problem. Uh, the problem being that humans maybe aren't unhuman enough, mm -hmm. or that somehow hegemonic structures are definitively human. Uh, and I'm not sure I agree with those notions, but I think the text is certainly giving us room to explore that. And mm. by showing us a human who becomes a part of a different uh, affiliation, I think that shows us mm. that there is some kind of hope for change uh, from these hegemonic processes. Absolutely. I think uh, that the main argument that the entire trilogy basically uh, promotes is one of interconnectedness between humans and non-humans. It's about a web of connection that really uh, exemplifies the balance much better than the current society in A Shallow Wolf does. Uh, a Shallow, I think, is sort of in the middle of this web of you know, connections between humans, non-humans, and the non-humans, as Tiana said, they include animals, trees, but also AI. So Ember is a robot who was constructed by a human and gained consciousness, gained sentience. And one of the most important points in the trilogy is that she is part of the balance. She has, you know, for lack of a better word, a soul. And so she is, she's just as important and just as sentient as a Shala and as the first would, because there's not really any a substantial difference between the tree and the human and the AI. So I, th I think that's quite interesting. David, yeah. Maybe that's an interesting um, 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 observation that we could draw from this because this is where utopia gradually slides into the dystopia and where we find the utopian element, you know, in the, in the broader dystopian scenario. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this is, um, just to come back to the topic we had just a minute ago, maybe this is where the text is um, at its highest post-racial potential. Not only post-racial, but I mean literally post-racial because it is also post-human <laughs> in a way. Absolutely, right? yeah. Um, so we're at different things sliding um, together mm-hmm. here in that very post-racial, post-human vein, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the utopian comes into the dystopian and, and all the different uh, entanglements and convergencies happening right here. Um, being taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I agree. Um, did anyone else want to add something to this? I'm not sure, Lucas, you've kept a uh, look at the time, right? Yeah, we're nearing a close right now. Maybe it's a good time for last remarks? I think oh. so, yeah. So um, maybe Tiana, you want to start with your last final thoughts on A Shallow Wolf? In general or? Wait, yeah, wait. in general. Um, yeah, I think it's a book that that very beautifully subverts some expectations and also um, pushes you into thinking in a very different direction, especially from a Western standpoint. I, I know reading it for the first time, I remember being like, oh, okay, that could go this way too. Like, I, I think um, if you if you read it, you can be opened up to a very different perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And also I think that, again, as I said in the beginning, the fact that the indigenous viewpoint has such a big agency and is is so validated um, makes it very hopeful. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I just think it opens up beautifully for um, um, a shift of perspectives. Mm. Good thoughts. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, David, what about you? I'll I'll come back to my initial comparison to Shuri Daimolai, not in Mm. order to discredit or, um, you know, kind of dethrone Jala Wolf here, because this is, after all, the the, the focus um, of of this podcast, but um, to to drive home the point that I was very happy to have a look at yet another well-written and very powerful indigenous young adult fiction text. Um, um, I was really happy about that, you know, to, to get to think more about maybe an emerging tradition um, mm. of indigenous writers um, of taking up a challenge and taking up uh, the struggle you know, towards exploring the utopian and dystopian mode um, to make a point um, for literary activism, really, and uh, mm-hmm. to, make, to make a strong social commentary, really. Um, and and I think that uh, the interrogation of a shallow wolf, at, at least to me, um, certainly provided another piece um, in, in mm-hmm. a puzzle. I think that is yet much bigger um, than we do understand. Absolutely, and I so so agree that this is important work that is being taken up, especially yeah. in the young adult genre, mm. because we have so many young adult dystopias written by uh, mostly white female authors, and that you know those are good, right? I'm not disparaging them at all, but I think these non-Western uh, dystopian novels really bring a different perspective into it. And yeah. now this is purely on a personal level. I read both The Shallow Wolf and The Hunger Games. And I think I've described this book to other people before as like The Hunger Games, but much, much better. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the the added political commentary, the added activism really helps to make it so. Uh, Lucas, your final thoughts. Well, uh, Hunger Games forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, seriously, I, I think that this is a, a great 
a book that has uh, a lot of potential to enact more of an effective direction that, that is moving in opposition to hegemonic structures. Mm-hmm. One thing that I really dislike about dystopian novels uh, with few exceptions. Like, so if I go through a list, if I'm like 1984, mm-hmm. Hunger Games, let's say Divergent, let's go with the Maze Runner, uh, you know, we can go on and on and on. Um, these all have this thing where they go, oh, well, you know, humanity is just so freaking evil that this, you, you thought you escaped one box? Well, guess what? The experiment was even bigger. Or all this rebellion was accounted for. You think that's air you're breathing. You're the sum of a remainder of blah, blah, blah. Uh, we've seen it a million times. We've seen it in the Matrix, as I was just reciting. We've seen it uh, pretty much in, in every kind of dystopian type of fiction. And here we have some real hope, some real hope for change that is not mm. incorporated within an all-consuming economic political system. Because for once, we're saying, hey, maybe that system, uh, whether we call it capitalism or, or neoliberalist politics, I don't know, or postmodernist philosophy, uh, these things are not necessarily perfect. They won't always last forever automatically. That's not always true. And we can't assume that it is. Mm-hmm. By giving us an alternate route, maybe that shows that there is an alternate path, mm-hmm. or at least it's something we can consider. Mm, I think that's a very good point. And lots of dystopian novels also, uh, well, you know how they extrapolate from current negative developments to ultra negative future. And the end point where the dystopia, if the dystopia is is, uh, solved at the end, if there's a positive outcome, it quite often reconfirms a fairly conservative status quo. If we look at the Hunger Games, I'm sorry, Lucas, um, It ends with Katniss being married to Peter and having, I don't know how many children, two or three. That's such a conservative, such a heteronormative ending mm-hmm. to what could have been a very radical novel. And I don't think A Shallow Wolf does that. Um, so it does provide hope in a way, hope for change. And I think that's also uh, an important aspect that Amberlynn Quimelina sees in her writing, this this potential for hope for change. Um, If you want to, you can have a look at a literary scholar, I think she's called Lynette James, who's written about uh, three different young adult dystopias with a non-Western viewpoint. And that article is called Children of Change, Not Doom. And I think that pretty perfectly sums up what Lucas just said. Um, Before we wrap up, just one thing that I noticed while we were talking about A Shallow Wolf, and I think maybe interesting for us to discuss in the forums, uh, and that is the fact that it's part of the trilogy and we're only looking at the first novel of it. What does that do with our reading experience? Um, it's a trilogy that's a very common uh, publication format in the speculative fiction genre. But what does it mean? It's sort of, it's forcing us to read the entire trilogy in order to get at its meaning. So I don't know, that's, that's just an open question for me that I'm just- Or is it? Mm. Or is <laughs> I it would say it is. By itself, yeah. Mm. Hmm? Sorry, David. What no, 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 um, just, just um, parroting back the question, could it be read as a standalone novel? I mean, do we need the trilogy to, to get the juice out of the interrogation of a shallow wolf? Mm. Probably not, because 
Mm. I mean, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't read the trilogy, so so I'm not able to tell. So Tina, you're the only expert who fully knows. But, uh, Tiana um, knows as well. Uh, Tiana, apologies. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how powerful is the trilogy? If we know that it is a trilogy, does it? As you just said, does it something of perception of the of the single text? Tiana, do you want to go first? I mean, you you were in my class when we discussed it just as the first novel, so that's your first experience of discussing the novel. What what did you think? Oh God, I don't. <laughs> you I don't, don't remember. Don't Shall I... we? Maybe we should talk about it on the forum. I yeah. think so. I think that's maybe a good idea. Um, and we can also maybe debate, you know, the Hunger Games phenomenon, or maybe just right after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> sure, let's do that. So thank you, Lucas, David, and Tiana for a very lively discussion. And that's it from us today. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Take care.